Welcome to The Honest Pour with John Lennart, where we go beyond the bottle to connect you with the people and places that make each wine so unique. In 1940, the historic Beaulieu Vineyard released its first vintage of Georges Latour Private Reserve. Over the next several decades, the great Andre Talachev continued to make this wine. Today, it is one of Napa Valley's most iconic Cabernet Sauvignons. In 1989, Jeffrey Stambor became BV's viticulturist and enologist. I sat down to talk with Stambor about fostering this tradition, how he found the inspiration for an exciting new project, and of course, to taste some delicious wines. This episode of The Honest Pour is sponsored in part by Foodeter.com, bringing you the stories of Chicago's chefs, restaurants, and people who make food all over town. Foodeter.com. Hi, welcome to The Honest Pour. I'm John Leonard. Joining me today is Jeffrey Stambor of Bullion Vineyards. He's the director of winemaking there. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome. How'd you get into winemaking? <laughs> I mean, you grew, up, you grew up in Ohio, right? Right. Northeastern Ohio, from... the hotbed of yeah, right. winemaking. <laughs> yeah. How'd you get into winemaking? <laughs> I left Youngstown, Ohio. That's how it started. Uh, and uh, my father had been living in Southern California. And it was the time when you could establish residency for university with an address. So I decided to go to Davis, uh, Initially, to study something else, which I found myself totally. People go to Davis to study things other than. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, well, it's. uh, I mean, it's. uh, There's a med school, vet school, school of engineering, law school. I mean, there's everything there. I actually went to. I thought to study veterinary medicine. Okay. But then found uh, it just that was not the kind of student nor interest that I had, and then was introduced to you know the college students' dream class about ten o'clock on a Friday, wines of the world. And you actually got to taste some wines as well. So, so that was the start of it. I ended up getting my degree in plant science uh, in 1982. So it was a time when the two disciplines of winemaking and grape growing were fairly separate uh, in the industry as well as academically. And then how'd you get to wine from there? <laughs> so, you know, you, you're this guy, you're studying your plants. and uh... Well, and I worked, uh, while I was going to school, I worked a couple of harvests uh, in Napa. So I would go over uh, on a Friday afternoon, work 40 hours over the weekend during harvest, and then come back to school at Davis. Um, so I actually, two vintages, I, I lived in my Volkswagen bus and showered in the parking lot, but wow. got my 40 hours of work in the weekend. Where did you work then? Uh, at Rutherford Hill. Oh, Rutherford Hill. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yes. And then, uh, then I traveled to France. My sister was living in the Savoie for what I thought would be a two-month vacation. And uh, it was a time when the exchange rate was very favorable. So I ended up spending about a little over two years in Southern Europe and North Africa, um, but worked two harvests at a small producer in the Côte de Castillon. How was that different than your harvests in, I mean, other than the language barrier, yeah. <laughs> other than your harvest in California? Um, well, it was where, where I worked. Um, I should travel with pictures, but... Um, was a very low-tech operation. In fact, most of the fruit that we grew went to the local co-op. Okay. So there was just a small amount of wine that was made on the property. Uh, Now it's actually the son of the the owners when I was there um, make is making biodynamic wine from the property. Sure, because that's the cool geeky thing to do. And it's a real challenge. But um, and I also met my wife uh, during that time. Oh, great. Although she's a fifth generation Californian. Okay. So after time in France, then you came back. You went, obviously, back to California. Yeah. yeah. And worked for a couple of small producers uh, and also a, what was envisioned as a startup super premium method Champenois 
uh, project as well. And then in 1989, I, I saw an ad for a viticulturalist enologist, which is, was kind of rare at the time, but it obviously by the title combines grape growing and winemaking yeah. uh, at, at Beaulieu. And so after a series of, I don't know, five or six interviews, I think we had, sure. um, I was offered that position, which was, you know, a remarkable opportunity yeah. with a, you know, venerable producer to have the flexibility of being able to incorporate both uh, grape growing and the winemaking aspects. Now, you've been there a long time now. It's 89. Yeah. Yep. up 28 and a half years. Wow. That's, that's <laughs> a, a long time to be at one place making wine, it is. for sure. It is. When, when you got there, I mean, obviously, Bullyu has this huge tradition, you know, been around yeah. virtually longer than anyone else. With the culture put it, set in place by Chelichev decades prior, what was what was that like? What was, uh, was there a change that you had to get used to to get... For that culture, well, it was it was very interesting coming into Bullyu because there, when I first started, there was a lot of lot of things that were done because that's how they'd always been done, uh, with not a lot of opportunity. Uh, the private reserve when I first started, it was like comes from these vineyards, it's fermented this way, it's aged in American oak, and you know there wasn't a lot of creativity. Or, or flexibility in what we were doing. But uh, shortly after I started, uh, we were celebrating the 50th anniversary of the 1936 George Latour, which was the first vintage ever produced. And Andre was convinced to come back and lead a couple of retrospective tastings, one in New York, one in San Francisco, where we tasted all 50 vintages. Wow. Yeah, as a young, impressionable winemaker, it was like <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, uh, pretty good. Walking amongst gods. Yeah. And so Andre took this as an added opportunity to complete the cycle with Beaulieu. And so he actually stayed on as a consultant until he died in 1994. And Andre was a huge instigator of change because he was very disappointed that things had not evolved, essentially, mm. in the time that he had been away. Interesting. And so he was a big agent of change. You know, he used to joke that he didn't have to worry about job security so he could he could say whatever he wanted. I, well, I don't think he ever, you know, held back on no, saying right. what he wanted. Um, and so it was a great opportunity to you know, have him act as kind of an agent of change. And so things really started to move a lot faster then. Uh, we were also in the midst of a, a widespread replanting project across the valley. In the in, 90s? In the yeah, early the 90s. Era. Yep. Um, and uh, uh, we were evolving the kind of those restrictions on the production of the wines, American oak. Uh, we were started to blend in other Bordelais varietals. I mean, there was so there was just a, a, a great kind of renaissance uh, of winemaking. And he did uh, it, Chelichev did it, lifted it. Well, he really helped, you know, open people's eyes about what it takes to um, evolve. Because I think that's an important distinction between evolution and revolution. And I look at the winemaking at Beaulieu as an evolutionary process. And so the pendulum never swung way out to follow fads, but a constant critique of what we were doing, how to make it better, not to be resistant to change, but neither change for change's sake. Mm -hmm. um, and it just was a real lively time. A lot of things were happening. We were applying this whole... Uh, 
bank of knowledge as far as viticultural physiology and, and growing practices that we had learned up until that time, but never really had the opportunity. But with the replanting due to phylloxera, rootstocks change, row orientation, spacing, trellising. Sure, you had to reinvent the wheel at that yeah, point. Right. So it was really a dynamic, uh, exciting time. That's terrific. Now, BU obviously has some of the most dynamic and interesting vineyards in mm-hmm. Napa Valley. And you've got a bunch down in Carneros. Yep. And you've got a bunch up Calistoga Way. Mm-hmm. And then you've got uh, Jersey Two or One and Two are right there by the winery, correct? Correct, in Rutherford. Right, right in Rutherford there. Now, Jersey Two Number Three, was that the one that was sold in Tol Cologne? No. No, was that? That was. Uh... Yeah, long history, and, and unfortunately, uh, George Latour was not very creative with his vineyard naming. Right. But, um, so BV1 is the original estate that started out as the first four acres that George Latour bought in 1900, which has now expanded to about 80 acres. Uh, Bullu number two is just adjacent and north of Robert Mondavi Winery, and so it's the southern... Just north of Mondavi, right, yep. It's the southern limit of... The Rutherford right, put it up right against Oakville there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, BV three was over on the Silverado Trail side okay. in Rutherford. Uh, four was just south of Mandavi, the so Tokalon. Four, four was the one that was in yeah. Tokalon. Yeah. And now is that is that owned by uh, Andy Bextor for now? Yes. So that that juice is uh, farm boy historic. Yeah, right. <laughs> that, <laughs> that juice is uh, some pretty important stuff as far as Napa Valley goes. Yeah. Uh, when did that get sold? Uh, I believe it was the early nineties. Was there a reason that, that the company decided to part with that vineyard? Um, I, you know, I I think it was the the uh, economic times coupled with it needed complete redevelopment. Yeah, fair enough. So, obviously, in hindsight... It was probably the right time to do it. Yeah, and yeah. Great. Yeah, and you obviously still maintain premium vineyards. Right, right. And, and actually, it allowed us, because at the same time, we uh, purchased, outright purchased, vineyards that we had been leasing in Carneros. Oh, okay. So, it wasn't a net... I mean, it was actually a net-net gain of vineyard acres for the winery. When it comes to your winemaking, where do you take your influences from? What What, what do you love about wine and what do you bring to the wines you make? What I find really fascinating about wine is the dynamic nature of it and it taking a you know an agricultural product that uh, can be transformed in some into something really dynamic and ever-changing. Uh, and so I take my cues from the vineyard. Uh, I'm somewhere between wines are made in the vineyard. I think they're born in the vineyard. <laughs> and that's the whole concept of elevage or bringing right. up. So the wines are raised in the winery, but born in the vineyard. Um, and I also, my winemaking is is more gut kind of influence than it is scientifically driven. Um, I use analysis as a, as a tool but not as a real guiding light. So it's really intuition, uh, a lot of tasting. And, you know, I have a lot of history. I mean, the vineyards, I planted them. Yeah, essentially, right. when I started at Bullu and have grown myself, because I, mean, I certainly taste differently, think differently than I did 20 years ago, as far as winemaking goes. 
Now you're making mostly, I mean, mostly BV is known for Cabernet Sauvignon. Yeah. Tell me about some of the other wines you're making, though. Well, there's a really long history of making Pinot Noir. Uh, we were started making Pinot in the 40s at Beaulieu. And, um, uh, and I still have, ta- you know, recently have tasted wines from the 40s, Pinot from the 40s. It's still in unbelievable Oh, that's condition. great. Unbelievable. It just blows me away. Um, and then we do make, and over the years, we've made everything. Uh, in in you sure. know, small lots, anything from Sangiovese to Fiano to you know anything. Napa but, Fiano. That's <laughs> well, it wasn't from. That was a, an exception that wasn't from Napa, but um, uh, but we also make uh, a small amount of uh, single vineyard Zinfandel, which I'm really happy with. Uh, we make a little Pinot Gris, um, Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay. We make a, still make a fortified dessert wine oh. that was actually the what kept the winery in business during Prohibition. Sure. So sacramental, a, sacramental wine. Right. So there's a big historical place uh, for that wine. And I'm always looking for small lot things to do. I mean, we, make, uh, we made a rosé last year, an intentful rosé, not a byproduct rosé. Okay. And uh, from Charbono. Tariga, Zinfandel. <laughs> Tariga, there's Tariga? Yeah, yeah because we also make port. No kidding. And, and also just the interest of, you know, table wines of those Portuguese varieties are really right. quite interesting. So, you know, we keep busy with little things. And then obviously you make your Cabernets. Now you have yeah. a line of Cabernets. Let's talk about those. So let's start from the top of the mountain of sure. the theoretical, or, you know, the with the George Latour. Um, so the 2013 is the 77th consecutive vintage of George Latour produced, 36 being the first one. Um, and then we make Tapestry, which is a red Bordelais blend, predominantly Cabernet Sauvignon, but a little bit of Merlot from Carneros, and then Cabernet Franc, Petit Verdot, and Malbec uh, in small uh, amounts. Uh, then a Rutherford AVA wine. Uh, Napa, a broader Napa wine. Uh, and then we also make uh, a two wines, a single clonal selection of Cabernet, clones four and clone six, which came out of research that we did in the 70s. Which Are they was, labeled that way? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And, That's cool. And that actually gave us local, this trial that we started in the 70s, gave us local knowledge as we replanted the vineyards in the early 90s. So rather than looking to France to see what were the important clones, we knew what worked in Rutherford. Wow, that's really great. So we do two, we do a single bottling of clone four and clone six. We do a single bottling of the original De La Tour Estate, BB1, which is a Cabernet driven, but also has Merlot and Petit Verdot. And then we do a single vineyard BB2 wine which is 100% Cabernet, but it's driven by five or six different clonal selections of, of Cabernet. You're a busy guy. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you, make, you, you make this great range where you've got high quality, um, your Napa Cabernet, I guess I would call, not an entry-level Napa Cabernet, but affordable, approachably yeah. priced, all the way up to the Georges Latour, which retails about... 150 Which... In, again, in the world of Napa Cabernet, right. for a wine of its of, of its uh, 
historical significance of a wine of its unbelievable terroir. Um, you know what you're going to get when you buy it. It's not expensive at all. No, no. But you are doing a special project. We are doing a special project. Tell me about that. And it was a result of what I look as the gift of the 2013 vintage. I mean, it was a great vintage, really big. Yeah. Um, and also, we talked about, as we've been talking about this wine, I came to the realization that it also came, it was a confluence of things. Because here we were presented with unbelievable opportunity, vintage conditions to make an exceptional wine, truly exceptional wine. I don't know if I had been presented these conditions 15 years ago, I would have had the experience to truly take advantage of it. So there's that piece of it as well. And then in 2008, we redesigned uh, a place in the winery that essentially is a dedicated state-of-the-art standalone facility just for making George Latour. So having that tool available as well. Um, so those three things being available, I think no single one of them produced the wine, but the wine couldn't have been produced without all three of them together. So what's it called and what is it? So the wine is called Rarity. And um, I, think it, <laughs> I think it aptly describes what it is. And it came about from tasting, as we make George Latour, we've been putting together earlier in the Elevage period, uh, small sub-blends. And so there was a sub-blend that we kept on tasting that just was unbelievable, exceptional quality. There had always been a hesitancy to produce something that would appear to supersede the importance of George Latour. Right. But at the same time, to make a wine, this extraordinary wine that reflected these unbelievable conditions. I took about 10 barrels out of, I think it was maybe 70 or 80 of that one sublot of Beaulieu, of George Latour, and blended those 10 barrels together, uh, bottled only in magnums. Um, I think that's the perfect size for Cabernet. It, it is. Um, it is and labeled it as rarity, which I think is, it, it truly is. You know, fanciful names are an interesting concept. So 10 barrels in the magnums, that gives you about how many magnums? It's about 1,500. 1,500 magnums. Okay, so we're, we're not talking a lot of wine no. here. Um, nor nor should, should there be a lot of wine no. when you get to that level. Right. When this idea was swirling around, did you have a little bit of, like, self-doubt or question about, is this the right thing to do? Should I really be... Doing something that's going above uh, the George Latour? There was a little bit of that. I think more than... Because the ballsy move. I mean. <laughs> well, yeah. I think more than just the idea that of uh, or the anxiety, doubt about making something that would appear to supersede George Latour. It was, is this truly that quality? Because I didn't want it to be a just a barrel selection of George Latour. To me, the wine had to be different sure, from absolutely, George Latour yeah. as well. And we had some help in the blending because we've been working with Michel Roland for about 10 years now. And so having, you know, tasting with him and, and his, the, the greatest thing that he brings is his palate. Yeah, yeah. Why We don't talk about vineyards much or other things, but his palate. And so he has a, you know, the, the wines that he's tasted, all that helped to 
you know, kind of convince me that this wine was distinctive in us. It wasn't just my palate saying this is this is great and it's different and it's of that quality. And I look at at those kind of, especially the rarity, but even in the George Latour is uh, akin to fine art. I expect people to understand the inherent quality of the wine, and that's what I want them to recognize. Whether it's their actual preference or not doesn't concern me as much. Okay, fair enough. But if you can acknowledge the superior quality. So, so all those things pushed together, I was very confident uh, about this wine, uh, that it, you know, uh, that it would have those distinctive qualities that would have that inherent quality uh, to go ahead and produce it. Before we get into tasting wines, you've mentioned something twice now, and I've sort of let it go, but I'm going to get back to it now. You made mention of American oak twice. Talk to me about your oak use. Oh, um, historic, the first vintages of George Latour were aged in French oak. Uh, World War II restricted commerce, and so they weren't available. And Andre thought that an American oak barrel, although never knew in those days, was better than a really old French oak barrel or a larger format cask. And that was one of the things that, that changed in the early 90s. We started looking at the use of French oak for George Latour to the point now where at the 2013 that we're going to taste is 100% new French oak. So uh, let's taste some wine. Where should we start? Let's start with the 1975. Great. Um, and we brought that sort of just because we can. And uh, Thank you. also just to kind of set the context of the historical place that Beaulieu holds. Love that maturity. There's surprisingly uh, uh, still a good amount of fruit character in this wine. Obviously, the, the vineyards were managed very differently. Uh, the winemaking was, was different at the time. Uh, but all those things kind of age out. With mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about a 40-year-plus wine. Yeah, it's, um, there's still a vibrant, bright acidity, yep. but with some dried fruit characters, some date, some fig. Black tea. Yeah, black tea, right. Yep. Yeah. Um, that's what the tannins are. We're super like chi like tannins. Mm-hmm. Really silky smooth. Beautifully integrated. Great example of what uh, mature Napa Cab can be. Right, which no one really predicted in the early 70s. Yeah, we were still in that question mark time, right? Right. right. Wow, All right, so we're gonna, we're gonna jump in history pretty quickly. Okay. <laughs> to the 2012. Okay. Uh, so 12, another great vintage. Another great vintage. Maybe a little more delicate. Uh, yeah, I mean, the it was oomph. in a short range, 12 is exceptional. In a 20-year range, I think 12 is a good vintage. Fair enough. 13 is a different story. Right. right. Um, so this is the 2012... Clone 4. Clone 4. And then, then following is the Clone 6. So kind of the two of the uh, more unique examples of the two different clones that came out of that trial that we did in the uh, mid-70s. And this is uh, Rutherford? Yes. Yeah. And the origin of Clone 4 is from Mendoza, Argentina. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Some of the mm. biggest differences between the two, you could predict just by looking at the architecture of the clusters. Clone 4 
is a fairly good producer. The clusters are a little bit more compact. The berries are a little bit bigger, but not, I would never consider them big. Okay. Um, whereas Clone 6 is a very loose clustered, uh, really small berry, uh, low yielding clone. So is that a little more, is it a little more susceptible to shatter then? In years like 15? And... Well, just genetically, yeah. it produces less berries per cluster than Clone 4 does. But I mean, with the looser cluster. Right. It's a little more susceptible to... Well, no, it, it is more susceptible. Therefore, it has a looser oh, cluster. right. Fair. Okay. Yeah. I, I got it backwards. Yeah. One of the things about the historical vineyards at Beaulieu, they're all on the valley floor. Right. And certainly up until the 70s, we didn't really understand what the quality impact of hillside fruit was. Mm-hmm. I actually look at Clone 6 as having hillside fruit on the valley floor because of that that characteristic, that small berry, complete exposure to the sun. You have a higher skin-to-juice ratio. The tannins are, are uh, more pronounced, more concentrated than Clone 4. Yeah, the 4 the four is 2012 4. The tannins are super silky. Yep. Um, really beautifully integrated flavor. Um Again, bright acidity. You know, unfortunately, over the past 20 years or so, Napa Valley Cabernet sort of gotten this bad rap of giant, over-extracted, high-alcohol jam. Yeah. That's not what you're making. No. That's not what these wines are, clearly. No, and the key to that was managing the tannin expression. Because once you get that correctly, and that was a big thing of what happened in 2008 with the dedicated winery, is that um, it doesn't? You can you can make wines with more natural acidity. You mm-hmm. can make wines that are concentrated because they don't the they don't fight with each other. You know, tannin, alcohol, and acidity, right. when in balance, cr- creates these fabulous wines. Right. When one of them is wrong, it really kind of accentuates the negatives of the others. Sure, sure. So that's that's the twelve. Uh, clone 4. Is the Clone 6 next? Correct. Again, 2012? Again, 2012. And these are made in just very small quantities for visitors to the winery. Okay, so these are only members. available at the winery or yeah, through the correct. club? Correct. As a, an example of the singularity uh, of the expression of the clones of Cabernet. And our plantings are not limited to these two, but these are the two really... Mm-hmm. Great examples of yeah, the tannins a little more oomph on this, yeah. but the the fruit's got a little more to it as well. It surprises me that very often the clone six expresses its fruit in a red range, which when you taste the wine and the tannin and concentration, you kind of expect black fruit. Right, getting the darker, yeah. but no, this is uh, it's um. It's almost, without the greenness, it's almost like what I like to call uh, like an 80s-style Napa Cab, back when they used to express a little bit of olive. And yeah. Well, and that's the, the Sauvignon part of Cabernet right, Sauvignon right. that shouldn't be avoided. Right, right, which often is today. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Uh, really delicious. Um, BV's Tasting Room's right in the heart of Napa Valley on Highway 29. You can't miss it. If you're ever driving up Highway 29 and really want to experience some of uh, Napa history, 
stop at BV in the tasting room and uh, also check out uh, the Clone 4 and 6. Yeah, yeah. What's next? Next is the 2013 George Latour. No, this this is one I've been waiting for. And 13 was that, as we talked about it, just unbelievable vintage. The first of drought vintages, it was really early, and so the, it pushed the harvest date to be very early as well. And the harvest was early in 13? Yeah. yeah. We had the earliest that I can ever remember, and especially given... Earlier than 15, because yeah. I remember 15 being very early, too. Yeah, and but 15 was, so um, I guess I'm thinking... Uh, as we're chronologically getting through there. So 13 was the earliest that I had ever experienced. Mm -hmm. And actually 15 was about a week, 10 days later, even though it was a much smaller crop. Um, but picking in the early September is very different than picking in early October. Things sure. move a lot faster. Sure. Um, there's, there's a liveliness to the wines that I associate with that early harvest date. And it's not something that we can control. No, right. That's certainly what, we can that's take what the year advantage gave you. of when we recognize it happened. So clearly 13 was an important vintage to you and a special vintage to you. Yes. Tell, tell, tell me about the 13 Giorgio Latour. First of all, it's 77th consecutive vintage produced. Uh, and over that time, there have only mm. been four winemakers responsible for it. Andre the first, me the most recent. And, and I had that unbelievable opportunity to work with Andre for almost four years until he died in, in 94. So there's um, there's great continuity with this wine. So it's you know what the style, as you alluded to earlier, the style to expect from Beaulieu. Doesn't matter who the winemaker is. There's the culture and style expectations. Kind of like the great champagne houses. It supersede the people. I mean, I I have no. Do you find I have no doubt it's going to continue after I'm gone? <laughs> you know, I just hope that the respect for the tradition. And, and the quality expectations. Do you feel handcuffed by that ever? No. I mean, no, obviously you're all. making great wine, so. Not at all, because no. I think it's it's just, it's a much bigger thing than me. And so it will continue, and it started before. So I'm just, you know, kind of the guardian of it for the present time. And the hope is to just evolve that quality an interpretation, not to, not to you know, try and recreate it new. It's really cool that you know you oversaw the planting of the vineyards, and so these are these are truly your wines yeah. from the very beginning of the vine, uh, all the way through to the bottle. This 2013 Giorgio Tour is stunning. It's integrated. It's complex. It's a real challenge to make a wine that's drinkable today. But this wine in 20 years is going to be yeah. epic. <laughs> killer. Epic is the absolute <laughs> perfect word. 13 can be a little reach out and grab you still. Yep. And this one isn't. Especially interesting that it was an early harvest that the, you're able to get the phenolic ripeness on the seeds yeah. to get that sort of silkier tannin. Because it was a... It, was a long growing season. So it started early. It just started really early. And then finally, what do we have? And finally, we have the 2013 Rarity. Really elegant nose. I'm not getting a little bit. You know, in in I haven't gotten what they what everyone expects from Rutherford is that dustiness. Uh -huh. in your wines, your wines are a little little more to the floral side, I think, than the dusty side. And everyone says, "Oh, Rutherford dust, Rutherford dust." I'm not finding that quite so. 
prevalently. Yeah, and that's one of those terms that has been very misunderstood over the years because the, it originated with Andre, right. who said something to the effect of, it takes Rutherford dust to make great Cabernet. What I think he was doing was just pointing out the importance of the vineyard in, in his description. And so it really wasn't a statement about the sensory quality of the wine. It was more a statement about the importance of the vineyard. But that said, I think that there's a, a characteristic of Rutherford wines, not as much aromatically, but texturally, of a, a fine cocoa powder mm -hmm. dustiness mm -hmm. to the tannins more than anything. But okay. but it's a, it's a, been a misunderstood yeah. Yeah, yeah. over the years. But really elegant nose on this uh, 2013 rarity. Great. It's just a, a, a fruity attack followed by complex acidity and then the tannins are a little aggressive yet they're they're 2013 tannins they're like we said earlier they're kind of reaching out and touching you this wine's meant to lay down for quite some time delicious though delicious <laughs> i see each bottle's individually numbered yep there are a few wines that i have that's a 15.5 percent alcohol but about it's about the it drinks balanced that's you wouldn't know there, there's no heat to it you know there's a lot of times you'll drink a 14 percent wine and go wow this is so hot right that's goes back to the uh, aspect of balance and getting the, the tannin composition and quality correct. So that, I mean, this is a, the acidity is higher than, than mm -hmm. you know, we have seen in years past, but it texturally, it comes across as a very together, supple, persistent wine. Yeah, really. Um, I was shocked to see 15.5% yeah. on the bottle there. What's the plan going forward for Rarity? Obviously, this isn't an every vintage no. kind of thing. Is there a plan? Is there a, well, we'll see what happens kind it's of a, feeling? It absolutely is a we'll see what happens. It really, I think this is a wine that needs to speak to the winemaker and present itself that way rather than the winemaker kind of decide that there is one. Given the low level of production on this wine, how does one go about obtaining it? Is it obtainable? It is. It is. I mean, that it was first, there's a uh, limited quantity available in the market. Um, there's a limited quantity available through the visitor center, through the club. So that's, that's the availability of it. But it is, it is there. And that, because it's important to me that these are wines that, that people can buy and drink. Sure. Yeah, as I mean, we talked about not a museum before. piece. Right. What's the price on the Magnum? It's $1,000. $1,000 a Magnum. Yeah. Okay, so it's $500 a bottle. So you're right in there with the, with the Harlins and Bonds of the world of Napa. Right. Um, but in Magnum, you know, so you're getting two bottles. Yeah, and, and it's, it's, there's over 100 years of experience and passion and commitment to quality. From some of Napa's greatest vineyards. Jeffrey, thank you so much for your time. It was just a pleasure tasting with you, learning about how you got involved with uh, BV and talking about the great historic culture there. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. For John's tasting notes on the wines from this episode, go to www.thehonestpoorpod.com. Make sure you catch every episode by subscribing to The Honest Pour with John Lennart at iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Store. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at The Honest Poor with John Lennart and follow us on Twitter at The Honest Poor. This has been The Honest Poor with John Lennart. 
Music by Kevin McLeod. 